You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. I'm not a pessimistic person. I don't want to say, oh, you know, it's all doom and gloom. We've been there before. There were moments in which, you know, support for multilateral institutions was was incredibly high. Mm. And there were moments in which, you know, we had a little bit of proliferation of preferential trade agreements and bilateral trade agreements and the whole discussion, you know, are these sort of building blocks or the stumbling blocks? And, and it comes back again. And I think, unfortunately, we are sort of one of the deep downs, but, uh, but I want to be optimistic and think that uh, that there will, there will be a rebound in the support for multilateralism. Obviously, a lot of things need to happen for, for that to materialize, but, uh, but at least there's hope. That was Barbara Ramos, Chief Research and Strategist for Exports at the International Trade Center, ITC. I am Rodolfo Rivas, and this is my podcast. Welcome to it. I've had plenty of interesting guests in the over 60 episodes across five seasons, and yet... Barbara stands out amongst them with a vibrant story spanning continents and experiences. Barbara, originally from Brazil, was attracted to international relations early in her life, and she has made a run at it since. She's worked at two development banks, an embassy, and USAID, while also studying at the Fletcher School at Tufts University, before joining ITC a few years ago. This is just the cliff notes. There's a lot more. We talked Latin America, Africa, UN, academia, soccer, and everything in between. She also provides some great replies to the new section in the podcast. Stay till the end to listen to that. Barbara was a delight, and I was thrilled to talk to her in what I can guarantee you is an excellent episode you don't want to miss. I can't wait for you to listen to this one. Subscribe if you still need to. I hope you enjoy the conversation. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms or wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Please help spread the word by recommending us to your friends or your enemies. A small act like liking, subscribing, and or reviewing is greatly appreciated. The views, thoughts, and opinions shared in the conversation belong to the individuals sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employers. Just after the dawn. Barbara, thank you for hosting me here at the OIC, at the ITC. Sorry, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to to talking to you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for coming here on this uh, cold and rainy Friday. Yeah, like unexpected because normally it should be warm by now. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, we, we still have hopes for the weekend. Yes. Um, so, I mean, uh, let's start at the very beginning. Where are you from? I'm originally from Brazil, Rio. Okay. And how was growing up in in Brazil, in Rio? It was Rio. wonderful. An it was wonderful. City. Yeah, I'm not from the city of Rio itself. I'm from the state of Rio, about two okay. hours from the capital, uh, which is a relatively small town for Brazilian standards, about 120,000 people, which I guess for Switzerland, where, where we are now, is, is a fairly big city. Um, it was wonderful. It was a f very, very safe city growing up because it was also the headquarters of the Brazilian army. So, uh, as opposed to what you might uh, hear about Brazil and Rio in the 80s, my experience growing up was, uh, was actually living in a very safe city where I had a lot of freedom, a lot of liberty and a big family. So it was very, the typical sort of Latin experience growing up. <laughs> and when you were growing up, um, you, were you influenced by your parents in picking a, a profession? Not directly. Um, my parents have what one might consider very traditional careers. My father was in the military uh, and my mother worked for the Federal Bank uh, of Brazil. So both of them were public servants, national public servants. So when I was choosing my major, because in Brazil you choose your major actually before you go to university okay. as opposed to the US where you choose later 
later in your coursework. Um, I, I knew I wanted to do something international, and nobody from my family had even left, you know, my my hometown, much less the country. So it was so a little bit of a. Came from? I I don't know. I've always enjoyed traveling. I've I've always had a very curious mind. I was a curious child. And when I was in the process of, of choosing uh, my major on my last year of high school, my parents um, had the foresight, I guess, to send me to do an exchange program for six months in the U.S. Uh, and I just fell in love with the idea of being an international civil servant. Uh, my trajectory was not that straightforward, was not a straight line, but, uh, but the international Rome was always Clear. very present. So I don't think my parents' profession and upbringing influenced me necessarily because that was so outside of what they even conceived of. But I would say their open-mindedness did influence me a lot and allowed me to choose a profession that was very different from the profession of a lot of people around me. So uh, when, you, when you talk about uh, the period that you spent in the U.S. studying, was that in... Like when you were supposed to go to college? It was right? right before college, was in high school. It was my last, my senior year of high school. I spent six months uh, in California doing an exchange program. So studying in an American high school. And how influential was that, like being in the U.S.? Um, I mean, I, I love the U.S. The U.S. for me is, is a second home. I've spent, of my time abroad, most of my time has been in, in the United States. And, and it's a country that I admire. Uh, not perfect as, you know, no place is perfect, but I have tremendous respect for, for the people and, and, and for the, the institutions. And, and it was an eye-opening experience. I was 15 years old. It was the first time I was alone. I was away from home. Uh, so not only the fact of being in the U.S. and living U.S. culture, particularly in California, which is a very open-minded state, is a very, you know, sort of Uh, um, modern in terms of thinking. I think that shaped a little bit of my thinking as well. But, but the fact of being alone and being abroad also made me realize that, that I could, you know, sort of try and venture a little bit farther away than, than my own hometown and my state. So I think both in terms of the thinking, obviously when you're 15, you're highly, you know, you're influenced by a lot of things. Impressionable. Uh, but impressionable, <laughs> yes. Uh, but, but I think it was more of the, the, the feeling of, I can do this, that, uh, that led me to the past that followed. Yeah, the U.S. Uh, was also very influential to me. Mm. <laughs> I think for many people like around the world, but specifically in America, uh, Latin America is very influential. It is, it is. We, we grow up, I mean, obviously the United States has a huge influence all over the world, but Latin America particularly, I mean, we grew up listening to American songs and watching American movies. Yeah. Uh, and in many ways, we're influenced by, by American culture. I think... Now, and, and, and I find it very positive, there's a huge Latino influence in the United States, yeah. which is very beautiful to see. Uh, but growing up, when I grew up, it was the opposite, right? We were on the receiving end of a lot of influence. So being there uh, at the same time felt foreign because it was a foreign land, but it also felt familiar. So yeah. it, it also helped me uh, navigate that, that period uh, a lot more easily. And I know exactly what you mean saying it's foreign but also familiar because I also get the same feeling. <laughs> yes, and I think particularly California, right? When, yeah. I, when I did this, this exchange program, I was in Southern California. And I remember arriving there and the first class they signed me up for was Spanish. And I was like, I, I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> but I was surrounded by Latinos. And I got to tell you, I think my parents plan for this exchange program is that I was going to come back speaking good English. I actually came back speaking very good Spanish because that's, those were the friends that, that I made in high school because it's a huge Hispanic community. Uh, so in more ways than one was a very, you know, formative experience for me. And I think that now the U.S. is the second largest Spanish-speaking country in the yes. world after Mexico. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but then you came back to Brazil and you, you went to college? Or? I did, yes. I went back to Brazil. I finished high school and I, I took the entrance exams. That's how it works in, in Brazil. And uh, I went to University of Brasilia and the major I picked at the time was international relations. 
and I'm very glad I did. So um, that's the end of the 90s. <laughs> I, uh, I went to college in Brasilia, which is, you know, already was a big leap because Brasilia is about over a thousand kilometers away from my hometown. But for you, who had been in the U.S., it was like nothing. In a way, in a way. But, you know, I, I knew that the U.S. experience was a six-month experience, right? I did not know how long the Brazilian experience was going to be, and that ended up being eight years. And from there, I never went back. So I think it also changes the perspective. When And I think that you're talking this was around the, the 90s? So uh, end was, of the 90s, yes. Of this the 90s. was uh, 1999. Okay. Uh, I mean, this has been already like a few years after there was like, or I don't know if it was still ongoing, the, like the boom of like, like the second wave of multilateralism. Um, so at that point, did you think like, well, one day I'm going to be working in this area? I don't think that was entirely clear then. Obviously, being in an international relations, uh, being an international relations major at the University of Brasilia was, which was always always so very traditional, a traditional university in in Brazil. Um, we did have this experience. We had the UN models, and you know, we were exposed to a lot of the functioning of the multilateral system. But at the same time, we were exposed to international economics, which is what spoke to me more than anything else. Uh, politics. A lot of my, my college colleagues ended up joining the Brazilian Foreign Service. So in a way, international relations is a, is, is a wonderful major, but it's also very frightening because, you know, if you, I don't know, if you do law, yes, you can practice different kinds of law, right? But you're going to be a lawyer. Yeah. When you do international relations, people would ask me, but what are you, what are you going to, are you going to be a diplomat? Are you going to be, what are you going to be? And it was hard, you know, when you were that young, you're like, I, I don't know. I just think this is very cool. But, uh, but it was hard to sort of say, this is what I'm going to do, especially because I, I did enter, I think, thinking a little bit about the Brazilian Foreign Service, but then there were so many other options that were both frightening and exciting. Yeah, so I guess that is, that's interesting that you say, because it is, it is frightening, but at the same time, it's exciting because it, it just has endless opportunities. Yeah, but you know, for an 18-year-old, it's more frightening than exciting because yeah. you're very excited about a lot of things and, and you need to make decisions, right? Uh, and, and a lot of younger colleagues here at ITC and, and you know, in school and whatnot, and they, they ask me, say, you know, oh, I need to make these decisions. What would you say to your younger self? And I always say, these this decisions don't need to be you know, forever decisions, try different things and figure out what you want. Just thinking about them will not necessarily help you choose. Yeah. You can try things and it's okay to say, I tried and I didn't like it. Yeah. So I, I did a few of those things in college. I tried, you know, more of the politics side. I tried the UN, I tried economics. And eventually I think I chose the mix that worked for me. And also sometimes like some younger students when they don't get into the university that they were hoping for. They think it's the end of the world. <laughs> like, this is not even the, the beginning. Like, oh, yes. There's like so much more that at the end, it might not even matter where you go to. It, it, well, I mean, the, it, it might influence a few decisions down the line, right? But every step you take will influence the decisions you make down the line. And, and but it's not as catastrophic as not, it appears when you are at course, that point. But, you know, at that point in your life, that's those are the major decisions you're taking but, looking but, back now. But I say this yeah, when I even like, was on the other side and I was also thinking the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's true. But we, we, we seem to think that all those decisions and all those those occurrences are sort of defining moments, right? And, and they're not. They're perhaps, you know, they will move you in a certain direction, but, yeah. uh, but it's not defining of what you're going to be in the future. And you're only looking back is when you see like, ah, this is why, like actually my career is just kind of based on all of these changes that happened. It is, and there's a little bit of planning, but there's a little bit of chance. The yeah. people that cross your path the mentors you have, the opportunities you have, you know, you might have a chance encounter and end up working in a place that you didn't expect before. So yes, there is planning, but there is also room for, for luck, right? Yeah. And, and, and chance. Um, and I think we, we can't plan everything. And what was your first professional experience? 
after after university so while while i was in college i started interning at the united states agency for international development usaid their mission in brazil so i was an intern there until i graduated from college and after my graduation i became a staff so that was my first real job which was a, an incredible experience I stayed there for a year as staff, and I was then moved to the ambassador's office uh, at the U.S. Embassy in Brazil, where I, where I stayed for a few more years until I moved abroad um, to do my master's and graduate studies. So it was, uh, I think it was really throwing me in the deep end of the pool because fresh out of college, I was exposed to a lot of very, very interesting cool things right right off the bat and what are some of the things that uh, maybe you learned back then that you are still implementing now it was very interesting for me working at the u.s embassy i think for for two things uh, both the substance um, as well as the form right let's put it that way in terms of substance uh, when i started working for for usaid um, I was immediately drawn to the development world and I figured that's what I, I really wanted to focus on. And I knew I had to do a master's afterward. I knew eventually, you know, I, I would have to invest more in the academic part of it. But the exposure to development programs were incredibly interesting. Uh, so, so that helped shape a lot in terms of, of my thinking of, mm -hmm. of a future career. Uh, but also observing diplomacy. Right, how the diplomats engaged in conversation, how deals are actually done. I think I learned a lot of those soft skills that one does not necessarily learn in, in college just by observation. And I was incredibly lucky to be exposed to, to a lot of those things. I, I happened to accompany the ambassador in some of you know, his meetings with government officials. So again, straight out of college, I met presidents and the secretary of states obviously you know they were not there to meet me but i, <laughs> you know, I, I was the, the fly the on the wall i was in the room yeah. and and for a you know for a young young brazilian girl that was incredibly inspiring uh so i think from that path on i i from that moment on i was like okay i'm, I'm on the right path this is really what i want to what i want to be doing well, I think that was like very lucky of you that you found it like really, I mean, you said you tried several things, but it does seem that you found what you want to do like really early in your career. Yeah, I think so. I think I, I tried different things in college. I took different classes, you know, again, politics, history, economics, uh, but sort of the economic development world really, really caught my attention early on. Um, and eventually, I think slightly later on, the, the trade, which is, you know, what I've studied for most of my academic life and then dedicated my career. That came a little later, but I was always very drawn to international economics. But then all of these other things that you studied, actually, they also kind of fit in the, the larger things that you are also doing now. Yes, absolutely. Because, I mean, if you look at the, the World Trade Organization, right, and it's, it's about international trade, but it's not just about international yeah. economics. Yeah. There's a lot of politics. There's a lot of law. So I would not claim expertise in those other areas, but at least I can understand the jargon. <laughs> you yeah. know, I can have a conversation. And I think that's also very important to be able to look at the topic that you dedicate yourself to through other lenses and, and understand different perspectives around that topic. And I think you mentioned history, like even history, like right now, for example, we're talking about some issues and some more veteran diplomats are saying like, well, we've talked about these issues like in the past, there are not new issues. Maybe mm. we should look at what we said back then to see if there's something that we can use. Yeah, because a, a lot of topics keep coming back, right? Yeah. And, 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 and then new ones are, are added to the, to the story. So I think, you know, studying history is, is, is absolutely crucial. You don't want to make the same mistakes of the past. But at the same time, you don't want to fall into a trap of thinking that just because you are facing the same issue, the context is the same. Yeah. Because it might not be. Um, and, and I think we cannot fall, you know, it's, it's a fallacy to think that just because you're, you're looking at the same issue and you've encountered it before, the same solutions might work because the world is a very different world. 
Um, and, and if we're still dealing with the topic, it's probably because it wasn't properly dealt with in the past. So there's, there's definite value in, in, in leveraging the lessons from the past, but also trying and look at things from, from a fresh new perspective. Yes. And uh, so then you were at the, working with the ambassador, mm -hmm. and then what after that? Then, uh, then it was a wonderful experience, but, but I realized that uh, if I did not want to max out you know, very soon, because again, I, I was very lucky that straight out of college, I, I had a phenomenal job with a lot of, um, a lot of exposure. But at the same time, you know, I knew that the that path was was fairly short, right? As 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 a Brazilian working at the U.S. Embassy, there was only so there's only so much you can do, and, and I knew I had to um, to study more, to invest more in, in, in my knowledge and in my career. So I again was very lucky that uh, one of my supervisors at the embassy. Uh, had gone to the Fletcher School uh, of Law and Diplomacy in the U.S., where I ended up going for my graduate studies. Uh, and she was very influential. And, and, you know, over lunch and coffees and whatnot, we would talk about my career. And she took an interest in, in what I wanted to do. And she encouraged me to look at the U.S. as, uh, as a destination for my graduate studies. And I did. I ended up applying to Fletcher. Uh, she was very supportive. She wrote one of my, my letters of recommendation. And I got in, and uh, and at that moment it felt like the right the right moment to shift gears and to to take a break from from work, and and put more investment into you know my my academic career, which which I also felt very strongly about. So I left the embassy and uh, went to to the U.S. to to what do What were you studying degree. there? So Fletcher is an international affairs school. Yeah. My two areas of focus were development economics and international trade. So at that point, I had defined fully, I want to be in economics, I want to be in international trade. Uh, Fletcher has a variety of, of topics uh, that, that they offer students. It's, again, it's it, all international, but international uh, international security, international environmental affairs and economics and international relations sort of more strictly defined as uh, foreign policy. Um, but I ended up going towards uh, international development, um, development economics and international trade. There was a program for two years? Or? It's a two-year program, yes. Well, there are today more programs. At the time when I did uh, my master's, uh, there weren't that many options. I think there were two master's degrees. There was one that was a one-year sort of mid-career, which wasn't my case. It was still in the very beginning of my career. And then a two-year uh, master's program, which was, I, I don't know if it's still the same name, but at the time it was called the MALD. And that's the one I, I did. It was a two-year program. And I think that this institution in particular is, like you said, is very geared towards international, like an international context which is a bit uh, unique in the U.S. I mean, in my experience, when I started in the U.S., when we dealt about international topics, it was all from the lens of, like, I mean, I'm a lawyer, so it was mm -hmm. all from the lens, for example, how the domestic courts interpret international, mm -hmm. not so much the international per se, but I imagine that the situation in Fletcher was completely different. Yes, I think Fletcher is a very unique school in many ways. It is. The curriculum is incredibly international, but I think that's not even the most interesting thing about it. It's the student body. Mm. I think the student body is about 70%, or at least when I, when I was there, about 70% international students. And, and the, the Americans, the locals uh, that went to Fletcher, most of them were coming from... Um, USAID or uh, Peace Corps, so they also had very deep international connections. So you learn a lot in the classroom, but you learn so much from your classmates, and the variety was just astonishing. I met people from everywhere in the world, and everywhere I go and everywhere I've been since, I ran into Fletcher people, yeah. which is which is pretty pretty incredible. So. Um, and, and it comes a little bit from the history of the school as well. It was created as a joint program by some Boston area universities. I think it was Boston University, Harvard, and Tufts, where Fletcher is housed. They created some joint programs, um, and that was the origin of Fletcher, if I'm not mistaken. 
Um, Fletcher was created to be the international school. Kennedy was created to be the government school. So there is a lot of uh, cross-fertilization. So students in any of the schools can actually cross-register and we can take classes in any of the other schools. So there is something special about Fletcher. It's international curriculum. It's international student body. But there is also something very interesting about being in Boston and being in, in such an amazing university city where you can sit in you know, in any of these universities. And, and it's, it's like you're, you're accepted in one, but you get to, to take yeah. the benefit of, of multiple. So it was, a, it was a very enriching time as well. I think one of my previous guests was also from Fletcher, uh, oh. Keith, Keith Rockwell. Mm, not from my no? year. No, okay. not yeah. from my but, year. I mean, maybe but I'll, check, I'll check it out. I'll check it out. <laughs> maybe on the but maybe there should be more guests from Fletcher. Oh, yeah, I'll <laughs> give you, I'll give you a list. So we have, uh, there is a pretty active Fletcher community here in, in Geneva. I mean, it makes sense. Like, uh, yeah. a there lot should of be us many here. here because it's a very, like, it seems that this would be where they would fit. Yeah, from my year alone, I think we're about... 10 to 15, my, okay. my graduate year alone. Hmm. Um, I mean, I moved to Geneva not that long ago and after I moved, COVID hit. So we didn't really have a lot of happy hours and you know, occasions to, to meet, but we just restarted now and there was a Fletcher happy hour, I, I wanna say two months ago. And it was amazing just to see so, so many people I hadn't seen in like 15 years, because it yeah. was our 15th, um, what, reunion this year. Uh, so it was very interesting to, to see so many of us here. And it does, it does make sense that yeah. uh, that, that would be a lot. And so after this, uh, where was your next step? So after this, well, actually during Fletcher, um, one thing that we were encouraged to do, uh, and I think a lot of graduate programs do the same, between your first and your second year, you're encouraged to, to do an internship and to, to go yeah. the summer program. And, you know, as we were saying in the beginning, there are certain people that cross your path, right? And then they, they come back again. And I happened to, I was in Boston, thinking about this internship. I didn't quite know where, where I wanna, wanted to go. And my former boss from USAID, <laughs> he was in town because his daughter was also going to college there. And we met for, for dinner, very informal. And I said, you know, I'm preparing to, to do my, my summer internship. And he said, you know, where, where are you thinking? I said, I, I don't know, I mean, I wanna do trade. I wanna, I really wanna, but I, I, I don't wanna be in the US. I wanna go somewhere, but I also don't wanna go to Latin America. I feel like I need to try different things. And he said, Barbara, I'm actually moving to Mozambique. I'm gonna be the deputy director for USAID in Maputo. How about you come and work with me? We have a big trade program. You speak the language. It would be great, you can come. And I was like, sure, sign me up. <laughs> so that's, that's how I ended up for the first time in Africa. I was there for about four months. I went a little bit earlier and I stretched it a little bit further because it was such a wonderful experience. So I was there for about four months uh, in, in Maputo. And then another colleague who was also a sort of an angel in my life was living there at the time and I, I managed to live with her. Uh, and her family, and you know, because as a student, you're broke, so yeah. I needed. <laughs> I, I, I would have never been able to do an unpaid internship in, the, in Geneva. <laughs> so just putting it out there, but uh, but this experience was was really was really great because it was my first experience in Africa, and it kind of another light bulb went up, and I said, oh, this this is like they're so many similarities between yeah. this place and Brazil. Exactly. Well, maybe also in your case because of the language. The language, the food, the, food, the, the music, the, the, the culture, people. the family, like everything. Everything, everything. So yes. I was like, obviously there, there are differences too. I'm not naive, there, there are differences. But it felt so familiar, it felt so comfortable that I was like, I can do this. So after uh, Fletcher, I ended up joining the African Development Bank which at the time was based in Tunis, in Tunisia. And, and I went to work in international trade. I, I was posted to their international trade department. And I was there for, for a few years, covering mostly Southern Africa, some of the Portuguese-speaking countries, but, uh, but doing their 
managing part of the integration and, and trade portfolio. I, I was very involved in their aid for trade portfolio and that's how I first came to Geneva was through the bank because I was, I was doing a lot of projects jointly with the WTO, with the, with the folks there on, on the age for trade um, uh, division. So it was another like, you know, nudge and, and slowly sort of the career was, was solidifying. So after my, after graduate school, after my master's, I, I joined the African Development Bank and was in Tunis for a few years. I, well, I just want to touch a bit on what you're saying because also my wife is from Kenya. And like when I tell people huh. about how like there's so many similarities, like they see me a bit incredulous, but I'm like, it is very similar. The food, like the culture, like everything. And it's surprising that more people don't see it like from outside. But it is. It is very similar. Latin America and African culture is very similar. There are. There are many similarities. I think Brazil, especially, I can't speak, you know, on, on, on other countries, but but Brazil, given our history and, and the colonization and, and, and how that developed there, we have incredibly strong bones. Yeah. Our population comes from Africa. My grandmother, my great-grandmother, they come from, from Africa. And Brazil is also a very diverse country, right? If you go to southern Brazil, you would be excused to think you're somewhere in Europe because yeah. of the way you know people behave and the culture and how they look. If you go to northeast Brazil, if you go to Bahia, if you go to Salvador, I remember the first time I went to Nigeria, I was like, this, I'm in Salvador. <laughs> right? So there, there are many similarities given our history and, and, and the influence, the African influence in Brazil in the past, but also Brazilian influence in Africa today, yeah. particularly in Portuguese speaking countries. I remember it was very funny when I was in Mozambique, people would stop me because I, I would start talking. Yes, I speak Portuguese, but it's clear Brazilian Portuguese, right? It's a different accent. Um, and people be like, are you in that soap opera? And I'm like, what's up? Because that's what they know about. Like, that's the first thing they think uh, about Brazil. It's the soap operas. It is so influential. And, the Mexican soap operas. The Mexican soap operas are influential <laughs> everywhere, including in Brazil. But that's one thing, right? And yeah. then there's soccer, and then there's the music, and there's... There is a lot of influence as well uh, today, and, uh, and, and that's, that's beautiful. But the reason why I also mention this is because uh, knowing this, it, it makes me a bit uh, sad that there's not more integration between African and Latin American, mm. because I feel that it, it's natural that there should be. I agree. I think that, you know, culturally, it's, it's natural. But if we are honest, integration within Latin America yeah, and within Africa are not as strong as they should be. So perhaps it's not surprising that sort of yeah. cross-continental integration it's, is still very, very incipient, right? But Because even, for example, when, my, when I got married, I got married in, in Kenya and my brother who had to fly from Mexico, the, he couldn't fly. I think the flight from Mexico to Nairobi was like the furthest flight that you can take like anywhere in in the world because he had to fly to Europe and then uh, down to down. yeah instead But of like flying directly I don't know if that has changed since then it was like several years ago you see that a lot still I mean for instance from Brazil to go to the Caribbean the the easiest or cheapest way is to go through Miami yeah so you have to go to the United States to come back to the Caribbean. And, and in Africa, it's the same. When I was leaving in Tunisia, in Northern Africa, whenever I had a mission anywhere else in Africa, I had to leave the continent. I had to go to Paris or Frankfurt or Rome or Dubai and then fly back into the continent. So, you know, when you think of Latin America, Africa, I, I'm not surprised. Yeah. I'm not surprised. Brazil and Mexico. It's what they say is the big missing link in terms of Latin integration, yeah. right? We don't have very strong commercial ties even. It's true. And these are the biggest economies. There's a bit of rivalry even. <laughs> <laughs> But 
because of football. Yeah, maybe. but we can be rivals <laughs> and we still we can still trade, right? Yeah, <laughs> and that's one of the reasons why we should trade because it reduces the rivalries. <laughs> we leave them in the field. True. But I'm I'm not surprised. But mm. but I agree with you. I think it's it's culturally, especially you know, if you're thinking now, there is a lot more conversation about. Um, the, the sort of cultural industries, right? The, the services. I think that could be uh, an area where there's there's a lot of potential exchange there. The creative yeah. industries, yeah. because I think our, our our people are incredibly incredibly creative, both on both sides yeah. of the Atlantic. Yeah. But then, uh, when you were in the African Development Bank, mm -hmm. uh, you said you came to Geneva. Was that when the seed was planted? Like, oh, maybe. No, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. I, I remember all my missions to Geneva were in the winter and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> no, yeah. I did not leave Boston for this. Uh, gray and, and, you know. But uh, I came mostly for meetings, but I enjoyed the city. I thought it was, was incredibly uh, organized as, as is. Um, very charming, very charming city. But back then, I did not think that I would end up in, in Geneva because I, I, in my mind, there were two things that I wanted to do. I wanted to spend more time in the field yeah. um, and I wanted to go back to school to do a PhD. So Geneva for me would not check any of those boxes. Now I'm like, I should have done a PhD in Geneva. I should have done my master's in Geneva because it would have been much cheaper than doing it in the United States. But that did not cross my mind back then. Um, so, you know, I, I thought going back to the U.S. for, for um, a doctorate, but after spending a little bit more time in the field. So I wasn't even conceiving of, you know, being in a city like Geneva at that time. So you went eventually for your PhD, I also did. to Fletcher. I also think. at Fletcher, I went back to Fletcher. Uh, it seemed like like the right choice for me um, because I knew the school, I loved the school, and there was one professor in particular that I grew close with when I was doing my masters, and his area of research was the area I wanted to to study as well. So. You know, in, in the, the PhD is a very lonely road, right? And you need to find the right professor to work with because it's a, it's a lot of investment of time and resources. So you need to have sort of the right coach on the bench with you. And, and I felt that uh, Professor Kowalczyk, that's his name, uh, was the right person. And, and I'm, I'm glad I made that choice. It absolutely was. So I ended up going back to Fletcher uh, for, for my doctorate. What, and what, uh, what was the focus of your research? At the time, I was uh, studying a lot of infrastructure integrations, cross-border infrastructure, one-stop border posts, roads. Um, I was working a lot on that when I was in Africa. Uh, there was a big push for one-stop border posts at the time. Uh, trade facilitation was the time that the trade facilitation agreement was being, uh, yeah. was being negotiated. So there was a big push for, for sort of cross cross-country, you know, the corridors, there were a lot of conversation about, you know, north-south corridors. So I started getting very, very interesting in, in the economics of it. How do you finance such infrastructure? Um, how do you distribute the benefits of such infrastructure? Because it's not 50-50. So I, I started, while working on it, I started getting very interested theoretically about it. So I ended up going and, and dedicating my PhD to that. So that was the topic of my, my research, was studying uh, the costs and benefits of, uh, of multi-country infrastructure. And I, I think you mentioned that the trade facilitation agreement was being negotiated around the same time. Because I remember I started working on trade facilitation agreement. Uh, it was, yeah, everyone was talking about it, but it was also a very complex agreement <laughs> to to conclude. Mm -hmm. Even I, I, there's a lot of history, but even almost when we were about to conclude it, it seemed that we were not going to be able to do it. And eventually we did. Yes, and it's, it, for me, again, I'm, I'm not in the politics. I'm not, you know, I'm not a lawyer and I'm looking at it from sort of a technical, more academic perspective. And one would think, what is there to disagree, right? Let's make these things easier. Let's streamline processes. Let's gain efficiencies. 
but the reality is is very different. And as you said in the beginning, you know, just understanding sort of these different perspectives. Because in my mind, I'm like, I, I, I don't understand why you don't want to sign it. <laughs> it's like, it's so obvious. But then you need to come down to different levels and, and understand, you know, the concerns of countries. And I don't know, in terms of revenue and, and capacity for implementation, there are, there are many other things apart from, from efficiency, which is, you know, sort of the first thing that comes to my mind. But, but that was a lot, the, a lot of the conversation that was happening at the time, a lot about the soft infrastructure as they would call the the policies and the rules and the regulations and that accompanied a lot of this very large infrastructure investments and in my mind i wanted to understand when does this become really a white elephant right that you yeah. invest so much money and there is absolutely no return and it was i think uh, one of the, the like the earliest uh, accomplishment of another brazilian roberto savedo when yes, he joined yes. like, we concluded it And I thought that after that we were going to be concluding agreements every few months. One would think, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One would yeah, think. But yeah, the situation has not been exactly like that. But uh, I think that at that point it was, it was when there was a lot of attention going to these multilateral agreements because it showed that it was possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and again, we were talking a little bit about this, right? They are. There are ups and downs in, in multilateralism. And then again, looking at history, learning the lessons from history. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a pessimistic person. I don't want to say, oh, you know, it's all doom and gloom. We've been there before. There were moments in which, you know, support for multilateral institutions was, was incredibly high. Yeah. And there were moments in which, you know, we had a little bit of proliferation of preferential trade agreements and bilateral trade agreements and the whole discussion, you know, are these sort of building blocks or these stumbling blocks? And, and it comes back again. And I think, unfortunately, we are sort of in one of the deep downs, but, uh, but I want to be optimistic and think that, uh, that there, will, there will be a rebound in the support for multilateralism. Obviously, a lot of things need to happen for, for that to materialize, but, uh, but at least there's hope. Yeah. And after you concluded your PhD, then is that when you came to Geneva or not, not yet? Not so? yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm older than I look. Um, no. So while I was doing my PhD, um, I wanted to collect data on some infrastructure projects. And at the time, the um, Inter-American Development Bank in D.C., they were doing a lot of work as well in the in the sort of cross-border infrastructure, there was this big initiative in South America called IRSA. Uh, I won't remember what it stands for, but it's something, Infrastructure Integration South America, something like that. It was, it was something connected to UNASUR at the time. It was a big push for some priority projects. So I ended up getting in touch with them to, to try and see if we could do some joint work, if I could use some of their data. To, to run some of the case studies for, for my dissertation. And out of that, I got um, a temporary job offer. They said, you know, fine, but come and help us write a few things. We, we have some, some needs here as well. And I did that, went back, finished my dissertation, and ended up joining the Inter-American Deve Development Bank, the, the trade department, for a few years working on this area of evaluation of cross-border infrastructure. There was, again, at the time, a big push in the bank for, for multi-country, try and think of multi-country lending and, and integration projects. Uh, so I ended up staying with them for, for a few more years, actually, until 2018. And that's when I, that's when I moved to Geneva. <laughs> But before that, now uh, that you're mentioning, because now you, you had worked for the... African Development mm -hmm. Bank and also the Inter-American mm -hmm. Bank. What were some of the similarities or differences between the two institutions? I think structurally the two institutions are very similar, right? They function in the same way. It's, you know, there is the uh, concessional window, the non-concessional window and the lending. It's, it's structurally very similar. So for me, navigating when I, when I joined the, the IDB wasn't that different because I had had an experience before. Um, to me, the, there are two big differences. The first one is cultural. 
um, because I think the organizations are very culturally aligned to the regions that they mm. represent. So there is, you know, definitely a more Latino culture <laughs> in the American Development Bank and more African culture at the uh, uh, at the African Development Bank. Both with you know positives and negatives on 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 each side. So I think the the work cultures were were slightly different, uh, but I gotta say both experiences for me were very very positive, very positive. Partially because I had very good bosses in both institutions. I think you can see that I've been very very lucky with the people that you know I, I managed to to interact with and 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 the supervisors I've had I had phenomenal phenomenal bosses on both institutions So I had very very good experiences there and the second difference is the country. So the the Income level of most of the borrowing countries at the African Development Bank was much lower, mm. so that changes a little bit of the the dynamics and the types of projects that you can do and the priorities as well. Uh, but in general, again, going back to what we were talking about, that's one area where there potentially could be a lot of cooperation. You know, the development banks working more closely together. There isn't a lot of at least that I've witnessed, huh? and I was far removed from that, so maybe that was, and I and I just didn't see. Uh, but a little bit more cooperation to try and you know exchange experiences and lessons because there is a lot that we can bring from one continent to the other, uh, in terms of of you know trying different things and proofs of concept and sort of sandbox environments. I think that there is a lot that we can learn. And also foster a little bit of the integration through through these institutions. But in general, I felt that they were they were fairly similar. I think like I've had many guests in my podcast, but somehow like your profile seems also very unique. I don't know if many that I've talked have had like a such a rich professional experience that mm. spans different organizations in different continents, uh, different like at the embassies and different things. So I think that that is. It's very unique. I haven't really come across many people with that. And I think that that's something that adds a lot of value when you come to an organization like mm. ITC, because you have a more wider perspective that allows you to perhaps see things that others might not see. I mean, I tend to agree. Obviously, that's my experience. So I... Look, there, there. As with anything, there are positives and negatives, right? And uh, starting with the negatives, I, I've moved a lot. That could be positive, and, and I enjoyed that. But it takes a toll on you as well. Um, friends, you know, when you start building a community, then you're packing up and you go in again. Um, so there, are, there are negatives to having this this type of, of lifestyle. But I think in terms of the positives, it's the perspective that you gained, that, that you, were, you were mentioning. Because especially spending, spending time in the field, not just flying for a mission, even mm. if it's like, oh, it's an exhausting two-week mission. Like, uh, cute. <laughs> <laughs> really, you really not seeing much from that. Um, and, with, and I say that with tremendous respect, obviously, you know, people have to make personal choices as well. But I think spending time in the field, especially early on in one's career, gives you a different perspective on your work. And, and, I, and I always go back to that. There are moments in which you're frustrated. There are moments in which you question yourself. But it's in the back of my mind, I always have that it's about the people we serve. And I remember the people we serve because I've seen them. I lived there and it's about those people. It's not about me. It's ultimately not about the UN or the WTO. Again, with tremendous respect for the organizations. It's not about them. It's about the people we serve. Yeah. And I think it's important that, that we have that experience. I mean, you and I, we come from developing countries. So that already changes the way we see certain things. It's just our perspective, it's just you know, our upbringing. And, and I encourage a lot of the, the younger team members and the younger colleagues to, to do that. The, the later you, you know, the longer you wait to do that, the harder it is, because again, life, life happens. But, uh, but I encourage people to, to have that breadth of experience. But, but, it's very important, even though it might seem 
you know, that it goes in different directions, your, your end, your, your sort of end goal is very clear. It's not like, you know, I went and did something completely different. They were all within international development, all within international trade from different perspectives in different places. So it wasn't a straight line. For sure, it wasn't a straight line. But I could see the end of the, you know, I can still see the end of the road. Yeah. Even though it's, it's webbing and curving and, you know, going in different directions. And I think that's important as well. And so now, now you got to Geneva, to ITC. Yes. How was that, uh, that change from Washington to Geneva? <laughs> in many, I mean, different in many ways, right? I, I wouldn't even say Washington to Geneva. I would say U.S. to, to Switzerland. Um, United States never sleeps. It's a completely different lifestyle, right? I would get out of work and go grab a drink with friends and then realize <laughs> I didn't have yogurt for, you know, tomorrow. And I would go to the grocery shop at midnight and get my yogurt and go home. Here I'm like, I need to leave at six or this grocery <laughs> shop is going to close. Yes. So there, are, so there, is a, there is definitely a culture shock, which is amazing. You know, for somebody that has lived in so many different places, it was a little bit of a culture shock for me coming to Geneva. Um, for, perhaps because I'm older, you know, and it's harder to adapt when you're younger. It's like, ah, whatever, you know, mm. I'll figure this out. Um, so it's, it's harder to adapt. But I think it was also the first place that I'm living in such a quiet place. I say, I say that, you know, coming from Brazil and having lived in all these well, places, I miss a little bit of the chaos. Yeah, the, the hecticness. I, I, I do. You know, and I call it chaos. Some people may find that, you know, negative. And I don't say that in a negative way. Maybe I shouldn't say chaos. Maybe I should say the spontaneity. Yeah. Right? I, I miss a little bit of, of that, right? That you don't have to have your entire week planned, otherwise you're not going to be able to get your dry cleaning or you're not going to have food because everything's closed. So I do, I do miss a lot of, of that, but at the same time I do recognize the benefits of living in an incredibly, incredibly safe country, incredibly organized, and you can't take that for granted, especially as a woman, yeah. um, you know, just to know that I can walk home at any time and, and I feel safe. That actually, that that is something that many people take for granted here. Yeah. But us, uh, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm t talking about me, like me growing up in Mexico and knowing that that's not really a guarantee. It's not a yet. guaranteed. It's uh, not here, a guarantee. It's a really great place to have a family, and you know that your family is safe, and yeah. that is something that is worth. It's, so much. Exactly. Yeah. You 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 shouldn't take it for granted, and 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 again, you should see the. No place is perfect. Again, no place is perfect. We we're talking about the U.S. before. No place is ever going to be perfect, but it's perfect for what you want at that stage in your life. And you make choices and you make informed decisions. You know what you're going to get and you know what you're going to have to give up. It's a compromise. And, and I'm happy I am in Geneva. I'm happy I am in Switzerland. And I am happy that I made that decision in my 40s and not in my 20s because... I can see Geneva getting very comfortable. Yeah. And I'm yeah. glad I did not get comfortable at that point because I, I am who I am today because of the experiences I had in the past. Uh, so it was, it was a big change um, in terms of adapting to, to the culture and to the new place. Professionally, it was also a big change. Here at ITC, I'm managing a big team, which is a tremendous amount of responsibility. I am incredibly lucky, again, that I work with incredibly talented people, devoted, dedicated, that with whom I share this, you know, it's about the people we serve. It's about the people we serve. These are true international uh, civil servants. My, my team goes above and beyond. So I, I am very lucky in that sense. But managing a large team is... Uh, It's stressful. <laughs> so I'm glad I am in predictable Geneva for that. It takes the stress out of everything It else. It takes out those variables that you can... Yeah, exactly. exactly. What, what are some of the, the projects that you're working on at so, the moment? So here at ITC, um, I'm the chief of research and strategies for exports. So the team has two 
sort of two big buckets, right? One is the research side and one is the strategy side. And the research side, we have a number of things we have to deliver, but the most visible one is the ITC flagship publication called the SME Competitiveness Outlook. We, mm -hmm. you know, SMECO for <laughs> the initiated, that's how we call it, SMECO. And every year we, uh, we analyze a different topic that is of interest to small businesses. So last year we looked into services and I'm very happy to see that the WTO has taken on our lead and is now doing a, a big report on services. We initiated that last year. And this year we're looking into small businesses in fragile and conflict affected areas, uh, which is not a uplifting topic, but incredibly, incredibly needed. And I learned so much from, from this study. So that's the, the research side. And on the strategy side, we support a lot of countries in developing their own trade development strategies. So right now we have big projects in Iraq, South Sudan, uh, Curaçao, in Central Asia, Micronesia. So it's spread all over the globe and, and it's, a, it's a team that helps countries understand their potential, uh, the potential sectors with, uh, with the ability to, to help them not only increase exports, but really economically transform that can change the makeup of their economies. And then we help them develop strategies to make that happen and implement those strategies and monitor the, the strategic implementation. So I have two quite different sets of, of activities going on and, and big teams on, on either side, but it never gets dull because there's so much diversity. Maybe the city is dull, but your work is not. Oh, that's, I wouldn't say, I, I did not say that the city was dull. I said it was predictable. No, but what I was going to say about that, because I remember when we, when Switzerland hosted the Euro Cup, I was at the fan zone. It was, there were, it was full of fans, but it was quiet. And I just thought like, this in Mexico wouldn't be like this. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> there would be like so much like noise and life, people dancing, people doing everything. It just seemed like, maybe dull is not the word, but it's just quiet. It's quiet. <laughs> it's, it's, it's subdued. It's subdued. subdued. Well, I'll tell you a funny anecdote. When I, when I was doing my master's program in, in Boston, there was, I think it was a friendly game. I can't remember. This was a long time ago. Between Brazil and Mexico. Hmm. In Foxborough, which is about an hour south of Boston. That's where the... Well, I guess now it's called Gillette Stadium. I don't know. Um, and obviously all of the Brazilians and the Mexicans and every other Latino student, we, we rented cars and we, <laughs> we were super excited for the game. But I think the government of Massachusetts did not realize not how really. important this was yeah. and how many people would actually mobilize to go. We never made it to the stadium. We were stuck on the road for three hours, we were listening to the game on the radio because I think they didn't realize how big a deal. It's like, it's Brazil and Mexico. Yes, yeah. it's a big deal. <laughs> so hopefully for the World Cup that they will host in the same stadium, uh, some of the games, they will be a little bit better prepared because it was well, actually one, so also, also one of the one of the cities that is hosting is also my city. Oh, is it? So, yeah, it's going to be... Yeah, it's because be it's the, the, three the three countries, countries right? Yeah. Talk about integration. Yeah. That's going to be interesting. It's but a lot good. of traveling, huh? Yeah. Hopefully, I'll make it there. <laughs> yes, but I'm hoping to make it too. The other thing that I wanted to talk about is uh, I saw that you are also teaching. Like you, you also... So, on top of the very busy... Uh, work that you have here, you're also teaching. I had to take a break from that. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> Otherwise, it would yeah, because be because and I was going to ask you because yeah, for no, me it that be I'm impossible. not doing it at the same level, it is very draining. It is, and 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 I was very reluctant to do to to stop because it's you know academia is important to me. Um, I did not want, at least not until this point in my life, I did not want to be a professor full-time. Yeah. But being connected to academia, I mean, I'm the chief of research, so that, I enjoy that kind of thing, right? So being connected to academia, being in an academic environment was very enriching to me, and I did not want to let that go. So I was teaching uh, a program at Fletcher uh, for mid-career 
professionals, a, a master's degree for mid-career professionals. And for a few years, I managed to do the two things at the same time. So my day job and also the, the teaching, especially because it was a hybrid. So I could do most of it online. And then there were you know, a few weeks in the year where, where we would have in-person sessions. But, uh, but since taking the job at ITC, mm-hmm. I realized that if I continued doing both, I wouldn't do neither very well. And that wasn't fair to my team here. It wasn't fair to Fletcher. It wasn't fair to me. I was exhausted. So it's one of those decisions that you, you, know, you can't have at all. So I, I had to uh, take a pause from, from that program. A pause, but maybe you'll be back. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is now, well, this has been a really great conversation. Now, for the last part, Uh-oh. there's like this new section. Yeah. That the idea is I'll ask you like a couple of questions and you just tell me like your first reaction to oh my goodness (laughs) on a friday it's not so it's not so difficult okay let's see so it's in one word two words like short short just the whatever comes to your mind it doesn't have to be one word you can expand but okay just don't think too much because the idea is okay whatever comes to your mind okay this part we might have to edit so (laughs) (laughs) are you ready yeah i guess as ready as i'll be What's the best advice you've ever gotten? Try it. Just try it. What's the worst that can happen? Great. What's the best advice you've ever given? Try it. What's the worst that can happen? (laughs) (laughs) I really had said I was going to separate those, like put that one a bit after. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? When I was young, I was dying to be a flight attendant. Really? I think that's beautiful. And every time I'm in a plane, which happens fairly often, I still look at them and I think they're incredibly elegant. <laughs> so maybe if I didn't do this, I would be a flight attendant. <laughs> well, that's, uh, I've never heard that. <laughs> What's something you wish you had known 20 years ago? That you can always change course, that those decisions that I made 20 years ago and as happy as I am with them, they shouldn't have given me as much exasperation as they did. There is, there is always a plan B and you can always, you know, shift gears. Pineapple in pizza? No, absolutely not. No, no. <laughs> Drama or comedy? Oh, I actually like horror movies oh my god really yes i i am going tomorrow to a festival in neuchatel about horror movies oh you gotta send to me this information i actually it's a yearly festival into like really bad horror movies like tell me one like not just horror but there's like these animals that were exposed to some radiation and you know like Sharknado. Yeah, yeah. I shouldn't I shouldn't say that in public, but that's my that's my guilty pleasure. It's because I don't have to think. (laughs) I'll send you the information about and zombies. I'm really into zombies. Anything with a zombie in it, I will watch. I was going to ask you about that because I I wrote a review about a book that a Fletcher professor wrote. International relations and zombies. And zombies, yeah. yes. <laughs> Which I, I just thought, I use it in my class because I, I think that it's a really good way to engage students. Yeah. Because many of them like watch these movies and then this is a way into international yeah. relations. Yeah. I love yeah. zombies. <laughs> <laughs> Who is your favorite artist of all time? Oh, favorite artist of all time. That's such a broad question. Of anything. Oh. I have to say, just because there's a very cute story that goes with it, uh, there is this writer, Mozambican writer called Mia Couto, and I started reading him, and, and sorry, I know this is supposed to be short, so no, I'll tell this in one okay. minute. I started reading him when I was living in, in, in Mozambique, and I fell in love with the way he writes. It's a little bit of African magical realism, right? It's Gabriel Garcia Marquez type mm-hmm. of you know, set in Africa, and it was, it was amazing. And um, fast forward many years, I was walking in Zurich and I see this man at a cafe in Zurich that looked exactly like him. And I was like, this can't be. 
So I Googled his name and I saw that he was actually launching a book in Zurich the, the day before. And, and it was him. And, uh, and it was him. And, and I actually stopped and had a conversation with him, like very short conversation. But it was, uh, it was amazing just to see him in person in such a you know, sort of out, of out of place. Yeah. Uh, well, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so I would say him just because... And he, was, he was surprised of all the places. I, I know, because I, when I approached him, I was like, I got I to gotta say something, right? And I, and I spoke in Portuguese. And he immediately, like, he was taken aback because it, a, a writer is also not somebody whose face you see yeah, very often, yeah. right? You, well, unless they're like uh, Stephen King. You yeah, know, but. yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but it's not necessarily somebody that you would recognize on the street. It's not a movie star. So he was a little taken aback, but he was incredibly kind. And, you know, he was like, yeah, like, what do you like about the books? What are you doing, Zurich? So it was a five-minute conversation, but he really made the time. And I think that made him that more special. I already liked him as a writer and he seemed to be just a very, very cool human being as yes, well. Pretty cool story. Yeah. <laughs> Not so much advice, but if you could recommend one thing that you enjoy, what is it? That I enjoy in general? Yes. <sighs> Spending time with family and friends. And I think given the, the path I chose that's not something that I get to do very often and I think after COVID and it's sad to say that we have to go through something so tragic and dramatic as COVID to realize those things I made a resolution that I am not going to let work get in the way of spending special time with special people so if there is a birthday if there is a wedding I'm not going to say oh, not a good time for me I will find a way yeah And the last one, how would you like to be remembered? I don't need to be remembered because <laughs> I mean, truth is very few people are remembered in the future. Um, but I would like to be referred to by the people that know me as somebody that cares, that deeply cares. And if no one knows who Barbara Ramos was, that's fine. But if I touch the lives of those that are around me, that's good enough. Well, thank you, Barbara. It has been great. It was wonderful. Thank you. What a great conversation for our Friday afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. This was the wonderful Rivas project. I hope you loved it. Can you dig?